0: So welcome. Today, I'm truly excited to welcome to the Academy Changemaker Series, Sharon Barra. Sharon represents over 200 million workers as the General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation. She's held this role since 2010, over 12 years, and she's been advocating for the essential role of labor movements in creating a just and equitable society, and most recently advocating for the just transition. In today's series, we'll get to learn a lot more about Sharon Barra, her background, what excites her and what inspires her. We'll get to understand what a just transition means, what this means for Sharon and how we collectively should work towards this goal. We'll also learn about the interlinkages between climate and social issues and how businesses and business leaders must take action on both, not one, for the success of humanity. And finally, we'll talk about Sharon's view of the future and her advice for current and future leaders. Sharon, and thank you for making the time to join us today. It's a pleasure. You've been the General Secretary of ITUC for 10 years now, since 2010. But I want to ask you, you know, what sparked your interest in this area of work, in labor, in movements, and certainly most recently on the Just Transition? What
1: makes you tick around this area? Well, I started life, professional working life, as a teacher. And I think if you educate children, then you have to be interested in their world, humanity generally, the future that will uh, be out there for them. And uh, I never meant not to teach, to be honest, I loved it. But my own uh, union, the Teachers' Federation, and I was, I come from Australia, so of course it was in the state of New South Wales and my state branch had a dual heart, if you like. One was about professional standards and educating children and fighting for the sort of curriculum standards, the uh, time uh, to be with the children, to be able to educate properly, to prepare for quality education. And the other one was, of course, the more industrial issues about just wages, uh, you know, the capacity for teachers to manage incredible workloads and of course support for the children with specialist services. So one day I stepped out, um, passionate about curriculum, and uh, to do a job for my union, and the rest is history. You know, I never meant to build a union career, but here I am. For the last uh, almost 12 years now, I've had the extraordinary privilege of working for and with workers all around the world. It is incredible to be able to walk into almost any country and have a family there to greet you, to uh, tell you about their lives, to tell you what they need to improve working lives or to improve conditions for their families in terms of income or social security. So for me, people, working people, the heart of the economy, but also just the heart of our own humanity that's a very, very important uh, challenge to to actually be handed.
0: Right. Well, two hundred million people certainly is a huge, uh, you know, group of people that you you are looking into and looking to their well being. Um, you know, over time, I think that the words or the phrase that we're hearing a lot now is that of the just transition. And um, there's lots of debate about what a just transition really is and what it means. And I imagine it means different things depending on, you know, where you stand in in the globe or in a specific industry. I'm curious to know what your personal vision for a just transition
1: is and what inspires you to work towards that goal. So when uh, when it became obvious that our planet was in trouble, and for me, I read my first IPCC report in 2000, it was like reading a horror novel. And of course I've read them every year since and it keeps getting scarier and scarier. But I was then uh, newly the president of the Australian Council of Trade Unions. And I knew this would be the biggest systemic change we would face in the workforce for people's lives, for the way we used our resources. So we had to actually find a conceptual frame not just nationally, but internationally, to try and have workers understand that this was a future they had to face, but that if we were going to face it, then we had to have a just transition, because we'd had many transitions previously in manufacturing, in other industries, and many of them had been anything but just Zander. So for us, this was a campaign and it enabled uh, many of us to work to bring the labour movement, and we still do. But along with the concept of just transition, our, um, our mantra was that there are no jobs on a dead planet, that we have no choice, it's not something we would want to take on, but in fact we, uh, we needed to because this is an existential threat to humanity itself. So we fought for more than 15 years first in Copenhagen and then finally in Paris to have this adopted in the Paris Agreement. For us it's very simple, it's not a difficult set of measures, it is that the workers themselves or communities should be at the table to design the future. So the plan for transition is is transparent, people understand it, they can see where they are in it, where there might be opportunities for their children, that we're not going to have stranded workers and stranded assets. So in its simplest form, it's a few elements. It's actually uh, uh, for workers who might be displaced or are uh, at retirement age and, you know, reskilling's not an option for them, then we need secure pensions. For workers that are slightly younger, but don't wanna leave their location or aren't able to see themselves in new jobs, a bridge to those secure pensions. But then for younger workers, we need income support, redeployment and reskilling support in terms of you know being the bridge to secure jobs that are based on cleaner technologies. It's not just the fact that we have to retire coal-fired power stations or end coal mining where the coal's going to be burnt or broader fossil fuels. It is actually about saying, how do you build the future? How do you build renewable energy? How do you build new industries that are based on clean technologies? And the technologies are there, the innovation is there, but the jobs have to be there and the confidence. And of course, it is about community renewal. If you are not able to replace uh, fossil fuels with renewables, for example, or dirty industry with cleaner industries, then you have to look at what will give the people in those communities confidence that there will be jobs for the future. So it's all about dialogue. It's all about shared ambition. And for companies, the companies that are succeeding are those that have a climate plan, that have dialogue with their workers, that agree on the transparency of what we call climate and employment proofing our workplaces. So a dialogue that gets us to, kapow, climate, and employment-proof the workplace and the future. So as with all global
0: problems, you know, sometimes the solution is self-evident and you've you've talked about some of these pieces, you know, putting people at the centre, looking at the technologies, uh, you know, making sure we can take, you know, the appropriate climate action. But why does this then fundamentally remain a challenge? I mean, is there one weak spot or two paths that you could point to because you know it's it's certainly on the top of everybody's minds and we see this as one of the key things that we must do to move forward but the not enough effort or outcome
1: is in is, is it. Well I'm going to be very blunt Sandy, you know me, and we have lobbies that are extraordinarily powerful. You know the more conservative lobbies that are climate deniers I can ignore because the science is clear. but What makes me really angry is fossil fuel companies. I actually stood against the divestment community 10, 12 years ago saying let's actually challenge the uh, fossil fuel companies to transition, to protect, to grow jobs. They have the technology, the capex, the skilled workforce and yet they haven't. Now there are some that are more innovative than others But this remains a lobby that is just unacceptably strong. So when the Secretary-General says, renewables are the future, stay the distance, we must get off our addiction to fossil fuels. He's much more articulate than me. But these sorts of messages, that's the case. So like we do in the Global Compact, it's about trying to build the relationships between business share the business vision, but also work in partnership with the trade union leaders like myself, so that we can lead people at the workplace to have those dialogues, make those plans, change the future. And of course, NGOs and community leaders as well. It will take all of us. But if we don't put people and and planet at the center of our economic models, If we don't build those new economic models together, then we won't like the future. We're already seeing it. Floods, fires, famine, heat uh, levels that people are simply not comfortable with, and of course the health implications. So we have no choice. Just transition gives people hope, and that's what we fight for. Right. So, and,
0: you know, you talked a lot about, you know, not leaving anyone behind and making sure we could work with business as a whole. You know, interestingly, as an answer sure, you know, you know, SMEs drive, you know, the vast part of the global economy. Yet oftentimes people think that issues such as a just transition, addressing lobbying uh, is, is the business of big business. So what, you know, what opportunities do you see for SMEs to engage in, in, in making sure that we can make that just transition?
1: Well, I think SMEs are not just the heart of our economies and jobs, but they're also dependent on those multinational companies. So again, dialogue and partnership is critical. If if the companies have to do due diligence around the UN uh, um, guiding principles for business and human rights, if they have to put in place the grievance procedures to effect remedy, then they, they should be doing that around environmental standards as well. And in that case, they should be taking responsibility for their supply, both upstream and downstream, because that's the heart of their profit base. But equally, governments and communities are uh, absolutely conscious of the need to support small to medium enterprise. I don't believe that SMEs, because I know so many you know community oriented business leaders who run small business, who actually want to make a difference. So the technologies can be deployed for them and with them equally as they can be deployed by and for larger corporations. And our cities, we work a lot with cities. The cities have the power but the bulk of the cities are actually small to medium enterprises. So if Cities use their procurement. If we work out how to invest in cities more effectively so they have the capital to drive the change, that's 45% of emissions, almost half the job. So we just have to look for where the levers are, and it will take all of us. It'll take communities, it'll take trade unions, it'll take NGOs, it'll take business of all sizes to be really committed. And governments, of course, should be on side, but where they're not, we can't wait for them. Yeah. It truly it really does sound like the need for a a
0: massive movement, I mean, a big shift, and then a lot of collaboration going across. Um, you know, just looking at another dimension of this, we've talked a lot about the just transition again and climate and its impact on people. But I know a lot of your work in, in the unions really talk, you know revolves around social dialogue. And I'm wondering, you know, from a business perspective, um, perhaps where there is an urgency and where, you know, dialogue process may be seen as something that may not necessarily have a quick end. I mean, could you talk us through perhaps what a social dialogue process looks like? And if you were to explain it to a a new CEO um, who is having a challenge with a union or an issue, you know, what what would you say? And and why would you say the social dialogue process
1: is of benefit? So... If you talk to your workers, if the workers are engaged in in the workplace, then you're going to have a healthier, a happier and a more productive uh, workplace generally. If you alienate workers and they're frightened about the future, then we cannot scale up at the pace and speed we need to. But let me give you a, a business story in this. Right now, businesses spend 80 billion, 90 billion a year on auditing. It's a huge industry. In many cases, you don't need to do those audits. You can simply talk to your workplace and your community, and you know whether there's everything from exploitation or dissatisfaction or fear about the future. And you know, in families, if you have disputes, you have to sit and talk them out you know, bring in skilled mediators, sit and help facilitate an environment where everybody understands that we have no choice. We have to scale up, we have to get to a net zero future, and we have to do more than half the job by 2030. I could be a union leader that was a resister, but this is the only home we all share. So if we're not on board to change the economic model, that is so exploitative of workers that you've seen income share from a, uh, a global uh, economic model that's four times wealthier, at least, in the last four decades, but labour income share in wages, in social protection, etc., just go down like a roller coaster. We can do better if we share prosperity because we're putting people and planet at the heart of it and then our businesses will be more stable but people will have the hope and the confidence. We just did a global poll, if you're interested, and um, indeed 66% of people said that they wanted action on climate. But the really interesting statistic for me is that four out of five, uh, sorry, three out of four workers uh, actually said that they wanted companies to be transparent about what their plans were for climate proofing the workplace. And the really uh, instrumental insight for governments is that almost half the people said they would trust governments more if there were transparent plans that they supported for just transition.
0: You touch on something which is really important, Um, society's expectation of leaders, not just political leaders, but business leaders. And it's certainly not the same and it's changed over time. What would you say is different in terms of the types of skills that you taught back then and the types of skills that perhaps we need now? Um, Do you see a significant change in what, you know, students need to learn, what leadership looks like?
1: You know, the industries of today haven't changed all that much in terms of aspiration of product or or outcome of product they haven't they won't change that much in the future what will change is the nature of the technological capacity and the materials because young manufacturers will say to you if you can't reuse it or recycle it don't deploy it that's a very different mindset i'm now joining my uh, former colleagues and of course my own uh, uh, union still in the quest with Earth Day and the Education International to mandate climate curriculum because if we don't educate the engineers and the doctors and the teachers and you know the service workers of the future about the, the nature of changes we have to make to stabilise the planet then we are being very foolish. We know the knowledge, the science is in. Let's make sure our children understand and we build curriculum around sustainable futures and not around the destructive industries of today.
0: Well, that's a really important piece, Shine. I mean, I was going to ask, you know, do you think we're moving in the right direction? But I think by you saying we need to go back and start educating and building curriculum, I think that really just speaks to the gap or the deficit um, that there is so you know if you are to tell a leader of an organization that this is urgent and important, I mean, what different way would you express it that would make sense to a business leader who's perhaps more worried about the short term P and L versus the longer term? Statistics say actually the average tenure of a CEO is about four to seven years. How do you balance that with these longer term existential threats that actually we see playing out in much shorter? time horizons?
1: Well, it's true that CEO's uh, longevity has shrunk dramatically. But the value set of a corporation you would expect has not, that they want to be a corporation for today and for tomorrow. There are two elements to the advice that CEOs themselves are, are actually thinking through. One is that the legislation has to change. We already see de facto regulation around TCFD or or disclosure of climate risk. People talk about not investing in stranded assets. We are investigating social standards and disclosure that would be equivalent. And of course, I can tell you that investors have said to me, you know, 10 years ago, Sharon, ESG was uh, too small to worry about. Now it's too big to ignore because there's also a lot of consumer power, but you marry that with the people's demand for legislation. Any business that doesn't, uh, that actually continues to exploit its workers or the planet, I think will be judged very harshly. But I also know, and you know, Sandra, that the investment is shifting. People are already shifting their investment. Now, I represent a trade union of, well, trade unions of the world. In fact, all workers. We have more than 200 million paying members, but we fight equally for formalising work in economies you know well, where the majority of workers are actually working informally, no minimum wage, no uh, rights, no rule of law, no social protection. And so in that context, we have 45 trillion dollars of workers capital, we call it our pension funds, not in those developing economies, obviously, and we have to build that social protection, but in the wealthier countries, invested in the global uh, um, uh, economy. So we want that money to, first of all, be risk-proof, so it actually does return pensions that you can live on with dignity. But secondly, we want it to do good. And if those asset managers aren't shifting fast enough, people are increasingly telling them that they don't want their capital with them and that's for business as well. So there are real real key markers that the businesses can
0: and actually should look out for. I wanted to just, you touched on the ESG debate here and you'll recall there was an article I believe in The Economist the other day that talked about you know perhaps some letters the E specifically was more measurable more verifiable and maybe we should focus on the E. Yet at the beginning you talked about the need to marry both the the, the environmental and the social bits. I mean, what do you say to that? Because it's becoming an increasingly, you know, vocal debate about the relevance of all three letters in an ESG debate.
1: I think uh, those who say that the S is not measurable are actually in denial. We have a UN agency, the International Labour Organization. I now manage the workers uh, group, it's a tripartite parliament where workers, employers and governments actually um, uh, make the global labour rules, the laws of the economy? Are they respected universally? No, but can you measure whether or not people are given the right to freely associate in trade unions, to bargain collectively, to be free of discrimination or child or forced labour? All those statistics are there. We ourselves do a global rights index. And if you are working in a country that is at level three, four or five, you will absolutely have uh, exploitation. So the challenge for business is to put the grievance procedures in place so they can affect remedy once the due diligence is clear. So that's for working people. But if you look at broader areas, we know the inequality figures. We know absolutely what that means in terms of the increase in poverty, in desperation, in the homeless. I mean, pick an area of social uh, activity and- Gender disparities. Well, and gender disparities, women lost $800 billion through through, uh, the period of um, COVID lockdowns. And that had an impact on the economy like nothing else. Our global supply chains, many of them, in fact, 94% of the workforce, is actually a hidden workforce. The CEOs, many of whom I work with and respect, actually wouldn't know their workforce in the Philippines or in Malaysia or in Kenya or in Ethiopia was being exploited because the obscurity of the tiers, we have to break through that. And you know members of the Global Compact talk about changing business models, some on scientific targets, some on social issues, some around inequality and therefore shared prosperity and of course, for me, around fundamental rights and social protection. But the measurements are there, so that's a myth. You can't, however, have a future where the environmental issues are actually ignored either because that's the issue that's going to destroy the planet. And unless those two things come together, people won't trust that the future economy will work for them. And our democracies, as a result, are in trouble. We need to change the way we make people feel secure. We talk about our common security with indeed the peace community, and it is about social, it is about demilitarization, but it's also about environmental stability. When people feel secure, when we have democracies that work for people, then you've got a chance of scaling up what we need to do to fix the convergence of crisis we face. So midst all this, Shan, what, what keeps you happy?
0: What keeps you optimistic?
1: Well, I think I'm an optimist by nature because you can't give up. And if you were pessimistic, I think it would be very easy right now, given the state of the world. You know, people want to know that there's hope. Yeah. And I think we all work together because we're driven to say, we can do this, we can change it. And that's just what makes us get up in the morning, I suppose. You know, stress can work either way.
0: Either way. But I imagine carrying the responsibility for 200 million workers, too, would
1: keep you on your toes and optimistic. It certainly does. And those people, whenever you talk to them, are always themselves very committed to making a better future. We'd like to end this with a lightning round where
0: you just share the first thing that comes to mind. You've talked a lot about creating this future that is just, that is equitable, that covers large and small businesses, workers from the global north and south, men, women, all sorts of parameters of society. So just asking for some quick answers for the first things that come to your mind. What leader, past or present, would you say has inspired you the most?
1: Kofi Annan. Fantastic gentleman. Fantastic gentleman. Followed closely by Mary Robinson. Fantastic lady. Those are great.
0: Um, you know, what can we learn from the perspective of young people? They are both, I think, terrified of the future, but at the same time, rest a lot of hope and change. What, what have you learned
1: most from young people? We can listen to them and learn that they they want change for the future and they want to be part of it. And as a female leader, what advice would you give to young professionals, something that you feel they haven't heard? Don't uh, hit your head against a brick wall, go round it. When people try to stop you doing what you know you should be able to do, just ignore it, move on, and those people will be left far behind. And the last quick question here would
0: be, what are the three most important characteristics you feel that leaders should have to navigate
1: today's world and possibly the world of the future? Humanity, knowledge about the world we live in and not just the world that you work in, and I would say courage.
0: Thank you so very much, Shannon. Thank you for your time and all the very best as you continue to work towards this just transition and an equitable future. Thank you.
1: Thank you.